We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go over there to Ephesians 2. I don't know how many of you were on or at Kyle Field on December 2nd, 1995. Uh, let me set up the scene for you. This was the annual Texas A&M versus TU football game. Uh, the very last one of the old Southwest Conference. And uh, just to set the stage, if you're not familiar with the history of this rivalry, it just so happened that as of 1995, A&M had actually beaten TU multiple years in a row. Something like four years running. Uh, Yeah, it's a good story right now. Okay. But December 2nd, 1995, uh, A&M was ranked, I think, 16. Texas was ranked number nine. Uh, Texas came into Kyle Field and we ran out of time. They beat us 16 to 6. Yeah, that's okay. You can do the, you know, that's good. Yeah. So uh, 16 to 6, Texas beats us. And uh, it was heartbreaking uh, because you knew that this was the last game of this conference. And so we were sad. It was a dark moment on Kyle Field. But as I looked down at Kyle Field, I saw something that enraged me even more. And some of you may remember this. Uh, the Texas fans standing along the sideline lines and in the lower bleachers began to storm Kyle Field, right? All of these long-haired, roughly shaven hippies from Austin (laughs) ran onto Kyle Field, right? And I felt this anger just well up in my heart. How dare they? How dare they step onto Kyle Field, right? And then something else happened. And some of you may remember this. Some of you know where I'm going. I confirmed this three times with different people to make sure that my eyes didn't deceive me in 1995. But members of the Corps of Cadets began to chase down those Austinites, And beat them senseless on the field. There was kicking and there was punching and there was hitting. And I found myself up in the stands, up in the third deck from my sophomore seat going, get them. Yeah, right. And we're cheering on. And then my roommate looks over at me and goes, yeah, actually, that's that's not cool. Um, You're cheering on violence. Right. And my initial instinct was shut up, like shut up. This is good. Like they had it coming. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, okay, he's right, right? This is violence. I don't want to cheer on the beating of people, even if they offended my sensibilities. Now, some of you hear that story, and I think some of you had a gut reaction to it, maybe one of two things. The first one is, no, that didn't happen. Aggies don't lie, cheat, steal, or beat people senseless, right? That's not in the code. That's why I confirmed with three people to make sure this actually happened, right? But then there are others of you that you say, yeah, it happened, but they had it coming. They deserved it. They deserved every minute of it. Now, why do I, why do I share that? Here's why. Because uh, the reality is that when it comes to our group or our team or our tribe, uh, we are not all the time objective, are we? We have a tendency to believe that whatever group we belong to is right, and whatever group somebody else belongs to, if they offend our group, they're wrong, right? Throughout the course of the morning, I'm going to refer to our various groups as tribes, okay? I'm going to use that language, and what I mean by a tribe is any group you belong to that you say, you know what, we share some values, we share some history, we share some culture, we think alike, we look alike, We are alike, and therefore, when push comes to shove, I'll side with my tribe against your tribe, right? So the Aggies would be one tribe. It's a fantastic tribe, right? And and we say things like, from the outside in, you can't understand it. From the inside out, you can't explain it. There's something special about the Aggie tribe. Uh, But we also belong 
to other tribes, don't we? Maybe we belong to tribes based upon our economic status, right? So I think of myself as middle class or upper middle class or lower middle class or upper class or whatever it may be. I think of myself as a professional. Maybe we belong to a tribe that's oriented around our profession. Maybe a tribe that's oriented around our ethnicity or our race, right? I have an Irish background or a Scottish background or German or I'm African-American or Asian or whatever it may be. And so we have a tribe that is geared around our ethnicity. Maybe we have a tribe even geared around our gender. And that's important to us, male, female, whatever it may be. So we build up these tribes. And then all too often, our tribe comes into conflict with another tribe and we're not objective. When you think about all of the conflict and chaos that has plagued the United States over the past two or three years, if we're honest, most of it is what we might call tribal warfare. Right? You have black versus white. You have American versus foreigner. You have Republican versus Democrat. Right? And so all of these tribes get to battling and sometimes there's even physical violence between tribes. Right? People begin punching or hitting or shooting or stabbing because somebody has offended their tribe, right? It may not go that far, but if you want to see tribal warfare, just open up Facebook on any given day of the week and you'll see it. Somebody offends your group and you lash out. Now, that's nothing new. The reality is that all the way throughout human history, people have had a tendency to divide themselves into tribes and say, I am in and you are out, right? And if you are out and you do something to threaten my sense of being in, then I'm gonna push you further out, right? I wanna make sure you don't take away what belongs to us in here, right? That is a human instinct that is rooted in sin. If you were to be living in the first century in Ephesus when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, you would have seen tribal conflict all over the place. There was male versus female conflict because women were generally viewed as inferior, right? Ontologically inferior to men. They couldn't participate in the political system. Rarely could they own land. They had limits on what they could do because they were women. So there was this conflict between male and female. There was conflict between social and economic classes, You had slaves and free and nobility and all of these classes that were fighting it out. One big one that Paul addresses here in Ephesians chapter 2 that is central to the early church is Jew versus Gentile. Paul was writing in the book of Ephesians primarily to a Gentile congregation. But to the Gentiles, the Jews were sort of an oddity. Because they didn't worship all of the gods of the Romans. And they wouldn't bow down to the emperor. And so the Gentiles looked at the Jews and they thought, this is a strange cult. The Jews looked at the Gentiles and they said, no, we're not a strange cult. We're favored by God. We are in. We have the covenants. We have the promises of God. We have everything in God. We have a relationship with God that you don't have. We're in, you're out. God made promises to us he didn't make to you. And so there was this tension. And in fact, in the first century, frequently there was violence and warfare between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it spilled over into the streets of Rome itself in a war. So imagine after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when the gospel is now preached not only to Jews, but to Gentiles, and there's this message going out, the Messiah has come. 
And he's offering life to all people on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. So Gentiles and Jews now can approach God on equal footing. And they're called to worship together. And especially if you were a Jew, how would you feel? They are taking what belongs to me. And so the Jewish people built boundaries and walls. If you don't keep kosher, if you are not circumcised, if you don't follow the law, you can't come in. And the Gentiles in their resentment stayed at a distance. And so what we see in Ephesians chapter 2 is Paul saying, we need to recognize as followers of Jesus Christ that that dividing line has been broken apart by the gospel. That in Jesus Christ, everybody, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, upper class, lower class, American, somewhere else. Everybody approaches God on equal footing as a sinner in need of grace. Right? And that transforms now the way that I view my tribe and it transforms the way that I view every other tribe because my primary purpose in life now is not to protect the privileges of my tribe, but to open the gates wide and say that in Jesus Christ, everybody can come in. That's the message of Ephesians chapter 2. And as we walk through Ephesians 2, here's the question we all need to be asking ourselves. Does my allegiance to my group, right, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, does my allegiance to my group trump my allegiance to Jesus Christ? What is it that makes us angry? Think about it that way. If somebody insults my earthly group, do I lash out with my words or even with my actions? Do I try to keep people outside my earthly tribe at a distance? If so, then the reality is we have allowed an earthly tribe to trump our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to say in Ephesians 2, no way. Because in Jesus Christ, the wall has been broken down. And we all approach God on equal footing. So that all of us arrange our values around Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The main idea of Ephesians 2 is going to be this. Through Jesus, God turns outsiders into insiders and enemies into friends, right? God turns outsiders into insiders and enemies into friends. And he begins right away in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, and he says this. We were once outsiders, okay? All of us were once outsiders, right? He says, remember, you once, the Gentiles, you were called the uncircumcision by those who are the circumcision, right? The greatest dividing line between Jew and Gentile was this issue of circumcision, Right? Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant promises God had made to Abraham. You go back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 in particular. God says, if you want to participate in the promises made to the nation of Israel, the, the sons have to be circumcised as a sign that they submit to God and they belong to this covenant. Right? If you were a Gentile and you wanted to be inside 
you had to be circumcised. Right? That was a high bar, and so most Gentiles didn't do it. And so they remained on the periphery. And he says, because of that, Gentiles, this is who you were. You were separated from the promises of God and the promises of the Messiah. And you were without God and without hope, right? They were inside and you were outside. Now, I want to have you for just a moment think about, kind of transport yourself in your memory to your junior high lunch cafeteria, right? I'm not trying to induce trauma, but if we do, that's all right. For the sake of the gospel, okay? Transport yourself back to your junior high cafeteria and think for a moment. My guess is that like my junior high cafeteria, there was an in-group and an out-group, right? And the in-group sat at the same table, didn't they? They would take the best seats, often at my school, in the center of the cafeteria. And then there was kind of a second tier of popularity who would try to squeeze in the crevices between those who were the in-group, right? And try to get a space at that table. And then there were others that would say, you know what, I can't even get a space at that table. I'll just sit at my own table in sort of concentric, concentric rings of popularity around the cafeteria. Right? I, I remember as a junior hire wanting to be in the center of that end table because that looked like where life was, right? That looked like where the privilege and the blessing and the joy was, Of course, I didn't know at the time that many of those popular kids were as tormented and sad as any of the other kids, because it didn't look that way from the outside, right? I had one brief shining moment of insiderdom in junior high because I memorized the McDonald's menu song from the commercial. Some of you will remember this commercial. It was like Big Mac, Medialty, a quarter pounder with some cheese, filet of fish, a hamburger, Happy Meal, you know, it went on, and I memorized the entire song. And I sang it to my friends one day at lunch and somehow word spread through the cafeteria. This kid sitting over there knows the song. And all of the in kids came over to my outside table and they said, sing the song. And so I did right there in the cafeteria. I sang the song and they applauded. That's awesome. And I was in the center and I was in and this was my moment until they all went back to their table (laughs) and left me at my table. And I remember that feeling of I am out and I want to be in. Maybe you have had moments in your life like that. If you were a Gentile who trusted Jesus Christ and you for the first time are aware of all the privileges God had given to the nation of Israel and then you try to enter in the church and you see people saying, no, you sit over there. That literally would happen if you didn't keep kosher. You sit at a different table. That issue gets addressed by Paul in Galatians. Even Peter And some of the apostles made this distinction. And Paul says, I want you Gentiles to remember this, that once you were outside. I'm going to guess that at least 90% of us in this room this morning are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. And we forget that the church in the early days was not composed primarily of Gentiles, but of Jews. And the Gentiles were considered outsiders. And Paul said, look, all of the promises of God were given in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. God promised Abraham. He said, Abraham, through your descendants, uh, you will have all of these descendants, as many as the sand on the seashore, and they will have the promised land. And then from there, they'll bless the nations. Of course, the Jewish people tended to forget about that part. Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be 
blessed, right? The, the nation of Israel had a tendency to stop their application point after that first sentence. But it was always God's plan to take those who were outside and draw them in. But the reality is that the Jews would say, no, you don't have access to this covenant promise. The promise God made to David. God promised David a Messiah who would come and reign over the nation of Israel forever and ever and ever. And they say, that's a Jewish king. You don't have the right to that. Paul says, I want you to remember, you were once outside. Right? But the good news is that God always intended to bring you inside. Zechariah 2.11 says, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. If the junior high cafeteria was not the place where you felt outside, my guess is you've had that moment in your life. And I was also remembering the first time that I visited China many years ago to visit some friends who were missionaries over in China. And by a strange combination of circumstances, Shannon and I actually ended up at the wrong city. We ended up in the wrong airport. And we were lost. We couldn't even figure out how to use the phone. We didn't know the language. I couldn't figure out how to get a cab. I didn't know what we were going to do. When we got to the right place, finally, everybody sat around and began to eat around this big spinning disc where the food would come around. And you had chopsticks, and I could not use the chopsticks well enough to get enough food. I went through the week hungry, unable to understand the language, looking different from everybody else and feeling very much like an outsider and thinking, this is just a week of my life. Imagine trying to enter a context where I always feel this way. Paul says, Gentiles, that was you. I want you to remember and lock that in your head because here comes the good news. Although we were outsiders, look at verses 13 to 18. But now in Christ Jesus, You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross." By it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. He says, God brought us near when we were previously far off. How did he do it? Through the blood of Christ. Let me explain a little bit of the mechanism that Paul is talking about here. When he says he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, right? Like I mentioned before, to the Jewish people, the law served as a barrier between them and the Gentiles. In order to approach God in worship and in holiness, they had rules and regulations about holiness. What they could eat, what they could touch, where they could go, what they could do. And they tried to obey that law as closely as they could. Of course, we know now they never obeyed it well enough. And so over and over and over again, the Jewish people failed to obey the key commandments of the law, like only worship God. And so they were judged over and over and over again. But by the first century, they're back in the land and this pride wells up in them. We are better than the Gentiles. And so they keep this law and they shove the Gentiles to the side. And Paul says, everybody though, 
stands before God as a sinner, even the Jews, even the Gentiles. So here's what God did in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on behalf of every single person and our failure to meet God's standards. In other words, every single person in this room, every single person through history, every tribe, every group has fallen short, not just a little bit, but tragically so, and is in danger of death and eternal separation from God. And so Jesus came, and here's what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, and then as a sacrifice, paid the penalty that we earned of death Because we didn't obey the law. And then he rose again. And Paul says by doing so, he's now abolished the law of Moses that kept Jews and Gentiles apart. And taken those who were outside and brought them near to say in Jesus Christ, everybody has forgiveness of sin if they believe in Jesus. In Jesus Christ, now we all can worship together. In fact, we're commanded to worship together on equal footing. We approach God on equal footing. And it says he preached peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. I was thinking this week about a way to illustrate what happened here, taking outsiders and bringing them inside. And I was reminded of a kid from my fourth grade class. His name was Patrick. I don't know Patrick's last name. I don't know where Patrick is today. If you were in my fourth grade class, forgive me for using this illustration. If you're Patrick, forgive me more. Because Patrick was this kid. And, and most classes have at least one. He, he was a mess. And I don't mean that metaphorically. Okay, he was a mess. He came unkempt to school. He never had his homework ready. His desk was just a pile of junk and papers and wrappers and all kinds of things. And it was distracting and detrimental to what the teacher was trying to accomplish. Patrick didn't fit the culture or follow the rules. And so literally what the teacher did is she said, Patrick, you are now banished over here. Right? And she took Patrick's desk and she moved him physically to another part of the room where his mess and his chaos could not trouble the rest of us in the center of the room. And it wasn't a temporary move. It was a permanent move. Patrick was there for the entirety of the rest of the, of the year, as I recall. And, and the interesting thing about it is, to some extent, it was Patrick's fault, I suppose, right? To some extent, Patrick had done some things to fall short, and so he was banished. He was exiled to the corner of the room. What did Patrick need? Well, he needed a lot of help. First of all, he needed forgiveness, right? He needed somebody to come in and say, you know what, whatever happened in the past, Patrick, I forgive you. He needed to be cleansed. He needed somebody to come in and say, I'm going to clean up the papers for you, Patrick. I'm going to clean you up. And then I'm going to bring you back so you can sit with the rest of the class. And then even beyond that, he needed somebody to empower him to do better in the future, right? He needed somebody to make sure that he wouldn't repeat the same things again by some magical force or power. Right As we read Ephesians 2, Paul is saying, this is what God has done. You were the one that was sitting on the periphery of the room or even outside the room. You had to sit in the hall. Right? I myself at times got exiled to the hall in junior high or high school for laughing too much. And Paul says, no, God reached out and he brought you back in because Jesus fixed what you couldn't fix because Jesus forgave. What you did, 
when you rebelled against him. And he made outsiders into insiders. And it says he came and he preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far away. Those who were near may not have even realized they needed peace. Those who were far away knew they needed it but didn't know how to get it. And so he came and he preached peace. Peace is this, it derives from a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word here, irene, but it derives from a Hebrew word, shalom, which has the idea of the fullness of life in God's plan. It says God came and he, Jesus came and he preached peace, shalom. I want to give you life again. And he drew them back in and he made outsiders into insiders, and he made enemies into friends, right? So now there's this vertical reconciliation between us and God that results in what? A horizontal reconciliation between us and those who know God in Jesus Christ, no matter what tribe they belong to in earthly terms. He turned enemies into friends, And the message of the reconciliation of Christ, and we're going to see this, is that now we are called to be ambassadors of that reconciliation to say, I'm going to step beyond the boundaries of my tribe's comfort and privileges to grab people and say, I want you in the best tribe of all. And that is worshipers of God in Jesus Christ. I think all too often we're afraid of those who are outside our group, aren't we? We're afraid if we let them in, they're going to do harm to our own group. And so we keep them at a distance. But those who know the good news of God and Jesus Christ are ambassadors of his reconciliation. I read an amazing story this past week about a man named Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a black man who lives in Maryland near Washington, D.C., He's a musician. He's played with you know, a lot of famous musicians through the years. Piano player. But his story goes beyond being a musician. He knows Jesus Christ. He's a Christian. And as I read his story, here's the course of what Daryl has done in his life, is that uh, living in Maryland, one day he happened to run across a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And Daryl, instead of saying, you know what, I'm afraid of that person. I want him to go away. I don't want to have anything to do with him. He said, why don't I sit down with this man? And he said, I asked him, like, why do you hate me when you don't even know me? He said, here's what I found. All of a sudden, as we began talking, when we were talking, we weren't fighting. And over a period of time of sharing with that person what Jesus did to reconcile tribes The guy handed in his robe and hood to Daryl. Actually, Daryl Davis now has 200 robes and hoods that he keeps in his office from clan members that he has befriended. Because instead of operating with fear, he said, I'm going to operate on the basis of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. I don't have to protect my tribe. I'm called to draw people into the tribe of Jesus. And it was deeply convicting to me. Because how often, I mean, the reality is very infrequently am I truly threatened by somebody outside my tribe. Other than maybe they may take away some of my convenience, my comfort, my sense of pride. And yet how often do we wall ourselves off and say, I don't want them in. 
And Paul says, now, in Jesus Christ, God went out and he took outsiders and he brought them inside. That's why Galatians 3, Paul would say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, in a literal sense, there is Jew and Greek, right? There is slave and free. There is male and female in a very literal sense. But what Paul is saying is this, that in Christ Jesus, those allegiances are secondary to our allegiance to Jesus Christ because in Christ Jesus, we all approach God on equal footing because of what he's done. That he took outsiders and made them insiders and turned enemies into friends. And then Paul will close this section by saying God is now building a united family by the Spirit. Look at verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. He says, look, God didn't just bring us near for our own sake. The goal is not that I say, you know what, I have reconciliation to God through Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven, so I'm good. The goal is God is building a united household. And he uses this imagery of a house And he says the foundation of the house is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sin and he rose again so we can have eternal life. The cornerstone, the most important piece is Jesus himself. We all arrange the direction of our house around Jesus, the cornerstone. And through the power of the spirit, then we are united into a people who worship God together. If you are of a certain age, especially around my age, you may remember one of the first reality TV shows. It was called The Real World. I actually think it's still on MTV. I don't know if anybody watches it anymore. Right? But the idea behind The Real World was we're going to take a bunch of people who are different and make them live in a house together. For a long period of time, right? So they got people of different political views and religious views, people of different races and ethnicities, and even people who had different understandings of morality and sexuality and said, let's drop them all in a house and get a camera and see what happens, right? And anybody who watched the show knows what happened was extreme drama every week, stress and tears and crying and banishment, and people leaving, walking down the street, dragging their sofa behind them, right? I don't uh, don't recommend watching it. It's deeply stressful, right? But I think that's the world's picture of how different groups are going to get along. It's pretty hopeless, right? You drop them together, and they fight it out. Maybe there's one or two people living at the end of the whole thing, okay? That's the world's perception. Right? Because in earthly terms, if I am asked to lay down the privileges of my group, I'm not going to do it. Why would I do that? Why would I give up something that is mine to give to somebody else? Right? If you were a Jew in the first century, you would say that. Why would I give up my spot at the table to bring in somebody else who hasn't earned it? Why would I worship together with filthy Gentiles? 
when they have been violent against the Jewish people and they threaten my sense of pride in my nation and my sense of self. Why would I do that? Right? Why would I go out to them to seek reconciliation? And you know what Paul says? You go out to them because that's what Jesus did for you. You were outsiders and he came out to you. The author of Hebrews will say he went outside the camp to where they buried the unclean animals. And he said, I want you in my tribe. And he died and he rose again so you can have eternal life. And God is building a united church in Jesus Christ. I was in the band all the way throughout junior high and high school. I played the alto saxophone. And from my perspective, the alto saxophone is the most important instrument in the band. Right? It sets the standard of musicianship and behavior for the rest of the students. Right? I believe that everything should orient around the saxophone players. Right? Heaven forbid that the trombonists get any sort of influence in the band. They're unruly. They're loud. Right? And so from my perspective, it was the most important instrument. But here was what was interesting was at the beginning of every single practice and every single concert, the band director would stand up and he had the audacity to tell us that we had to tune to him, right? So he would grab a little tuning fork and go, right? And we would all have to tune to that note, right? I didn't have the privilege of saying, hey, look, my note is better than their note behind me, even though it was, I had to do what? I had to conform my standard to that of the director. We don't get to decide who God lets in. We don't get to decide how God builds the house. God tells us how he builds the house. We all tune our notes to Jesus Christ. So that if my allegiance to my tribe conflicts with the values of Jesus Christ, guess what? I drop those values of my tribe, right? It doesn't mean I have to drop my entire tribe. But I've got to set aside values that are at odds with the kingdom of God. Right? That there are things that I deserve that other people don't deserve. Right? Because Jesus says, no, I gave everybody the equal opportunity to have eternal life and to live in a kingdom where they have enough to eat, where they have perfect fellowship with me, where they have a place to live forever. I don't get to decide how God builds the house. Revelation chapter 7 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. That's what God is building. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And here's the thing. When you envision heaven, if it's only people you like, you're thinking of it wrong. If it's only people who agree with your politics, you're thinking of it wrong. If it's only Americans, you're thinking of it wrong. If it's only people who look like you or roughly have the same economic status as you, you're thinking about it wrong. 
Every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every nation, God says, I want them all. And they all have forgiveness in Jesus Christ if they trust in Jesus Christ and all are called to conform their worship and their values to the values of the kingdom of God. And so the gospel itself calls us to rethink our allegiance to our earthly tribes and to retune our instruments to the note Jesus is playing. So quickly as we close, a few points by way of application. One, know who you are. Right? We all have these identities sort of stacked up. You have a profession. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a pastor, whatever it may be. You have a racial and ethnic identity. My ancestors come from Germany or Scotland, or in my case, some of them came from the Middle East, and I have this identity that imbues me with pride. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? But above that tribal identity, I always have to place at the top follower of Jesus Christ, part of Jesus' tribe, because he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Know who you are. Set all those other identity cards underneath the card that says Jesus Christ. Second, initiate with people who are different, who are from other tribes. And like I said, this is what Jesus did with us. We were outsiders, and he brought us in. Who are those people you interact with that you say, you know what, they don't look like me. They don't think like me. Maybe they're a T-sip, right? Maybe they're not even American. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe they voted for somebody that I hate. And you say, my commission is not first and foremost to change their earthly tribe, but to draw them into Jesus by helping them understand the love and the grace and the power of God to transform. You initiate with those who are different. And third, share the message of reconciliation, that the only hope of reconciliation is what Paul says. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Social programs are not bad. Service is not bad. I think we should do those things. Justice is something we should strive for on the earth as well as we can, right? I had jury duty on Monday and was reminded of that reality as a citizen of the United States, right? But Paul would say, ultimately, the only hope of reconciliation is to draw men and women to Jesus Christ, to understand that the message of reconciliation is that in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God and now we can be reconciled to one another. God is building something in Jesus Christ that nobody else has ever built before, which is a perfectly multi-ethnic, multi-racial tribe of men and women who will worship in his throne. And that will include some people, trust me, that you may not like. And so we share the message of reconciliation. Paul says, God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the good news. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the message of the morning is simply this, that you can have eternal life because of what Jesus did for you freely, as a gift by his grace, God wants to draw you in. 
For those who know Jesus, the message is we step outside of our earthly tribes to draw people into the best tribe of all, that is the group of people who will fall on our faces before the throne of Jesus Christ and say, he's the one. Look what he's done. Let's pray, and then we'll close in worship. Father, we are grateful for your word. Oh, forgive us of our pride and fear that keeps us from pursuing reconciliation. When we think of how your son Jesus, he existed in the very form of God and yet did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he crossed space and time and left his comfortable world to come and get us. Forgive us for allowing earthly tribe to trump our allegiance to our king. And teach us to rejoice in the gospel and share the message of reconciliation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.